The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Colossians 2, 8 through 23 is a powerful passage in which the Apostle Paul is seeking to warn and protect the Colossian church against the heresies that are facing the church at that time. He gets very specific in these verses on what it was that was facing the church, what was threatening the church. And as I look at this section of Scripture, I began to think of the image of a bully, like in a, a, a playground or in a, in a schoolyard or in other walks of life, a bully coming to seek to intimidate you and to move you, throw you back, get what he wants without even a fight, just through sheer intimidation. You've met the kind of people. And there's all different kinds of bullies. Everything from a, a, a young uh, five or uh, six-year-old who happens to be a little bit bigger than a three or four-year-old taking toys and there's nothing the three-year-old can do all the way up to something far more serious. I think about Adolf Hitler and how he basically bullied the world in the 1930s, taking over land that didn't belong to him, one country after another, just through sheer intimidation, because Britain and France and other countries didn't want to fight anymore after World War I. And so he just took over Czechoslovakia just by bullying and intimidating the British Prime Minister. Just through sheer intimidation. It's the way they did all their business. Jack boots on the, on the cobblestones and middle of the night terror and all that. Intimidating people. Nobody wanted to say anything. Just sheer intimidation. Or I read about uh, organized crime and back in the, in the heyday of the mafia. When they would offer somebody uh, whose business was worth $100,000, they'd offer him $50,000 for it. And he said he'd laugh, wouldn't take it. And then a minute later, they'd offer him $25,000 for it. And he took it. <laughs> because behind it is intimidation, the bullying techniques. Or it could be a boss who sits across the table and uh, kind of like Donald Trump tells you you're not up to the job and you're fired <laughs> at that moment. And you're intimidated. Or it could even be in school. It could be in high school or college where there's a group of people and, and they're just cooler and better than you and smarter in every way and you just can't measure up. You don't have the cool clothes. You don't fit in. And so they're the, they're the in-group, and you're out, and they intimidate you and, you, and you're afraid of what they're saying, what they're doing. More than anything, in all those cases, you feel inside yourself this one feeling that's common. I feel inadequate. I can't face it. I have to back down. I have to give way. Well, I tell you, all of these forms of bullying, they come from the same source. They come from the ultimate bully that there ever was, and that's Satan. He is the intimidator. He is the bully. And he is seeking to take Christians and intimidate them away from pure, solid doctrine to get them unstable so that they are at His mercy. And He seeks to do it through false doctrine, through lying to us about who and what we are, telling us what we can be if we'll do it His way, through intimidation. Now, I've read before, you know, illustrations. I've heard people use the illustration of the Secret Service, whose job, surprisingly, among other things, other than protecting important people like the President vice president and all that, they also are in charge of, of fighting counterfeiting in our country. And they are trained in uh, fighting counterfeiting. And so the sermon illustration goes, I've heard this, that they are so expert, the way they train is that they just study the actual real dollar or hundred dollars so well that immediately they can spot the counterfeit. 
that they know how the dollar is made. They know what, what, uh, what kind of, of paper, what are, the, what are the kinds of inks, the colors. The, they, they see and study every mark on the engraving. They just know it so well that they can, they can uncover the counterfeit. Well, I think that's not true, actually. They, I talked to somebody in Washington, D.C., and they say, actually, no, we study what the counterfeiters are doing all the time. We want to know what they're doing. So, yes, we study the real thing. And we bank ourselves in, in knowing better than anyone how a real dollar is made. But we also spend lots of time on what the counterfeiters are doing to defeat uh, our measures that uh, make it difficult for them to counterfeit. We want to know what they're doing. So it's both offense and defense. We're working on it. We see the Apostle Paul doing the very same thing here in Colossians 2, 8 through 23. He tells us what the truth is, who we are in Christ, how full and how complete we are in Christ. Then he uncovers the Colossian heretics who are using four bullies, four intimidators, to get them off of that solid doctrine. He uncovers them, he exposes them so that they will be, the Colossian Christians will be immune to their attacks and their intimidation. He does both. And for me as a pastor, I have to do both too. I can't just tell you what the truth is in Christ. I also tell you, have to tell you what falsehoods are out there that you need to be in, aware of and so that you can protect yourself. And so there are four intimidators in this text. We're going to look at one of them today and we're going to look at three next week. We're going to spend the first part of this message, though, saturating our minds on the truth, just as the Apostle Paul does. We're going to find out again who we are in Christ, just how full, how complete how completely God has met all of our needs in Christ. And then we're going to go face the intimidators with that strong base under us. And what are these four intimidators? Well, you can see it in the text. The first one is philosophy. We'll deal with that one today. Next week, three more. Jewish legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. These four. Now, I do not say that these are the only threats that come from Satan against the church. There are many more than these. But these are the four that were facing the Colossian Christians in their day, and they face us still today. And so we're going to look at them over the next two weeks, this week and next week. But first, I want to establish you. I want to found you on the truth. I basically want to make you happy in Jesus and in right doctrine today. I want to tell you just how happy you should be, and it doesn't matter at one level what kind of trials you're going through. It does matter. It should matter to each one of us. We should care about each other, bear each other's burdens. We should. But fundamentally, we are rock solid on Jesus. We are established and firm and not able to be moved from the truths that we're about to talk about, of who we are in Christ. We are complete in Christ. Now, let's review a bit. For those of you that weren't there uh, over the last few weeks or just, just to refresh our memories on the right doctrine, Colossians 1, the centerpiece of Colossians 1, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Just how supreme he is in all things. Colossians 1 verse 15 and following, speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the head of the church, 
For God was pleased, it says in Colossians 1, to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The supremacy of Christ in all things. That's the rock-solid foundation of my faith and yours, of my life and yours, if you're a Christian. Well, the idea then here in Colossians 2 is Christ is complete, so you're complete in Him. That's it. Because Christ is so complete, because He's a complete Savior. He is God, completely God in the flesh. Because He is complete. And because we are in Him, we are complete in Him. So Paul repeats this teaching and then links our completeness to Christ's completeness. Look at chapter 2 now and verse 8 through 10. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. If you have Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have everything you need for a rock-solid joy that's impervious, cannot be shaken by earthly circumstances. This is the solid foundation we have. Christ is fully God. And in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. This is a clear statement of what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. That God became man. He took on a human body. And he has it still because he's been raised from the dead. So he is still human and forever he will be both God and man. Forever. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. It's also going to be the doctrinal foundation, the solid ground under Paul's feet from which he's going to fight some of the philosophies of the Colossian heretics. They said that the body was evil. Coming from from Greek philosophy, coming from that whole philosophical background, they said that the body was evil and that salvation came from denying the body and all of its drives and all of its tastes, denying it, getting away from it, and that salvation would ultimately be away from anything physical but pure spiritual existence. But Paul says, no, in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He's got a body. And therefore the body cannot be evil itself. Paul then says our fullness is in Christ. And it has been given to us. Oh, that is so vital. You have been given fullness in Christ. We spend most of our lives trying to give ourselves fullness. Fill ourselves, that emptiness inside us. We can't do it. It was made for God. And only God can fill it. And we must be filled by Him. We can't fill ourselves. And here the the verse says, You have been given fullness in Christ. It's already yours. In Christ we are full. In Christ we are perfect. In Christ we are as righteous as we can be. In Christ we are accepted by God the Father. And in Christ, we have a full inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth. In Christ, we cannot be more secure than we are. We cannot be more full than we are. And why is this? Well, because Christ, verse 10, is the head over every power and authority. Now, the Colossian heretics were teaching that there were spirit beings in the world, emanations from the pure spirit God, who kind of did whatever they wanted to do, And one of the things they apparently wanted to do was make a physical world, something the pure spirit God didn't want. And so these emanations made this evil world 
Christ is a good emanation who's trying to save us out of the evil physical world. Christ is one of those spirit being emanations. That's what they were saying. No. Paul says, no, Christ is ruler over all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. He created them. He sustains them every moment of their existence. He will bring them to judgment. He is the king over all things. So Christ is the head over every power and authority. Remember in chapter 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created, whether things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things created by Christ, for him, sustained by him. So Christ actually rules over Satan and his evil kingdom. Glory, hallelujah. Praise God for that. Christ and Satan are nowhere even close to equals. He is the infinite God who rules over all things. Satan trembles before Jesus. He's filled with rage because he knows his time is short. Who makes his time short? Jesus does. Because he'll come back and overthrow him by the breath of his mouth. And he'll be finished. So this is the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus over those evil spirit beings. He is the king over all things. All right. So this is the doctrinal basis. Now, what good truths flow from this to us? How can we be filled by it? You may have come this morning feeling empty. Well, my desire is you'd walk out of here feeling full. Full and rich and complete with doctrine, with teaching. That you would read it right off the text in Colossians and you have it for yourself. You go home and get it. Just give me a Bible. I want to see what he said. And there it is. It's right there. That's my desire to fill you up with the text and with Christ. So that you know all the, the just a river of healing flowing clear as crystal from the throne of God. And, and the tree of life on both sides of it and the leaves of the trees of, for the healing of the nations. And you can find healing for yourself and fullness for yourself. You don't need to take that emptiness and go run and find it through some sensual pleasure. That's not going to do it for you. Find it in Christ right here in the, in the passage that we're looking at here. So he says in verses 11 through 15, first of all, we are fully circumcised spiritually. Look at verse 11. In him you are also circumcised. And the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Now, you might think that's an odd place to begin. We are full. How are we full in Christ? Well, first, we're fully circumcised. Well, I'm taking the text in the order I find it. And so we are fully circumcised spiritually in Christ. Why does he mention it? Well, because next week we're going to look at Jewish legalism and the entry door into legalism for these Colossian Gentiles was circumcision. It was an entryway into a whole different kind of life. A life they, didn't, they couldn't even begin to know how burdensome that life would be. The Jews had borne that burden for generations and they couldn't carry it. The burden of legalism. And circumcision is a symbol of that. Physical circumcision then was a religious ceremony ushering someone into a kind of life of ongoing submission to the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant. The dirty doctrine of legalism is this. By keeping rules and regulations, you can earn forgiveness from God and a good standing with Him and a rich, warm welcome from Him. By keeping the rules and regulations, God will forgive you and accept you. That is false. And that's the false teaching of legalism. We'll get to it next week. But circumcision uh, was a symbol of that. However, the true circumcision is not something done by the hands of men in the body, but rather it's something done by the Spirit of God to the soul in which that old person we were in Adam is cut away from us forever. And we will never be that person again. We are a new creation in Christ. How sweet is that? We have a new existence. And the old has been cut away and thrown away forever. It's a circumcision not done by the hands of men, but a circumcision done by the Spirit of God. 
Now, the new covenant symbol, the old covenant symbol was circumcision. The new covenant symbol is baptism. So Paul mentions it here in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. But please, friends, don't make a mistake. It is from this verse that our friends in the gospel who believe in infant baptism take a strong connection between circumcision and baptism. He's not saying that. Believe me, the Apostle Paul is not trading one religious ritual for another. In both cases, both the spiritual circumcision and the true baptism, both of them are done by the Spirit of God. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. You can get water baptized and still go to hell. I hope you know that. Don't be banking on the fact you were baptized. But he's saying now the true baptism, the true baptism is a union with Christ in which you have been united with Jesus on the cross spiritually, buried with Him, and then raised to new life spiritually. You have been united with Christ and He is your fullness. He's your completeness. So we are fully circumcised in Christ. We don't need that religious ritual anymore. Secondly, we are fully alive. Fully alive. I feel it today. I can't tell you how grateful I am to be a Christian today. Just to be here. The privilege of being alive, being forgiven, knowing that all my best things are yet to come. There's a joy there, isn't there? Fully alive. Are you fully alive? Are you fully alive in Christ? Well, if you're a Christian, you are fully alive. That's what it says. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Now, as in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul basically says, before you were Christian, you were spiritually dead while you lived. It's a horror story of the worst degree. Night of the living dead. It's not just night of the living dead. It's night and day of the living dead. It's a whole life of being living dead. Physically alive, yes. Biologically alive, yes. Spiritually, dead. Dead in your transgressions and sins while you lived, it says in Ephesians. And here it says, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Therefore, friends, every single Christian is a miracle of God's grace. A resurrection. It's a resurrection. I love it when skeptics, you know, the big, strong, macho types say, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. Ever heard that? Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. I say, well, you overestimate us. Christianity is not a crutch for the weak. It's a resurrection for the dead. You give us too much credit as though we can limp along. We can't even limp along when you're dead. It's no crutch. It's a resurrection. What does it teach of what it was like for us spiritually before we were saved, before we were converted, before the Spirit of God called us from the grave spiritually? If you went to a morgue and pulled out a slab and pulled back the the cloth and you wanted to stimulate that corpse, what would you do? Take a flashlight and shine it in its eyes. Will it respond? Will the pupils dilate? What will happen? Get a pin and poke it in the, in the foot. Will it jump? Will it jerk? Get some loud music, a boom box or something like that. Crank it up. You can choose any music you want. And don't think for a minute that the, the selection of music makes any difference at all. Because it doesn't. You can choose this music or that music. It will not respond. It's a corpse. The essence of being dead is inability, okay? The greatest picture of inability you'll ever see is a dead man laying on a slab. It does not matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. You cannot motivate. You cannot move that person if God doesn't move first. But let me tell you something. When Jesus stands before Lazarus' tomb 
And he calls forth and gives Lazarus a command. Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't just speak the words. Friends, he gives a power, a supernatural power of life to Lazarus. And then Lazarus chooses to get up and come forth and love Jesus and come out in the sunshine and eat a celebratory meal with him. He chooses to do all that. I choose to follow Jesus. But his choice came first and his powerful working in me came first. He gave me life when I was dead. Amen. He gave me life and he gave life to you too. And therefore, if you're a Christian today, you are a miracle of God's grace. So in him, we are fully alive. Thirdly, we are fully forgiven. And that's sweet. Not partially forgiven. How many of us would like to be partially forgiven before God? <laughs> that's not going to do you any good on Judgment Day, friends. And he doesn't give it. It's all or nothing on this one. But look what it says. He forgave us. What does it say? He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Oh, how sweet is this meditation. Full and complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Meditate on it. God was keeping a perfect record of every single transgression of His law. Every angry moment. Every careless word spoken. Every lustful thought, every covetous desire, every selfish action, a complete and perfect record for Judgment Day. And it says in Romans chapter 2, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. And His records are perfect. But now, in Christ, we are completely forgiven. I can't say it richly enough. We are completely forgiven. He forgave us all our sins. The record of our sins has been removed. Our sins have been hurled into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He has put a barrier between his perfect vision and our sins. And that barrier is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. That's what he put there. That's what he sees. Not our sins. And oh, the happy blessedness of this situation. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins will not be counted against him in any way and in whose spirit is no deceit. We don't need to be deceptive about this before God. He knows and we say, Lord, forgive me. We're just open and confessing because we are forgiven. We are completely forgiven. And this verse says so. He forgave us all our sins. How would you like to stand before God and receive from him 90% forgiveness? All you got left now is just 10%. You've got to deal with that on your own. How about 99% forgiveness from God? Would that be of any use to you on Judgment Day? I said to you before, it's all or nothing. This verse says it's all. Praise be to God. But now I need to ask you. I prayed that God would bring someone here today who's not a Christian. I prayed that God would bring you here today to hear this moment. Are your sins forgiven? Because it's not true that he forgave all people all their sins. That is not true. He forgives people who come to the cross and ask. He forgives people who trust in Jesus. Have you done that? 
Have you repented and turned away from your sin and received from Him the free gift of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ? Are your sins forgiven? And if they're not, can I urge you right now to look in your heart to Christ and trust in Him, in His promises, and believe that His death is your death, His resurrection, your resurrection, His righteousness, now a gift, your righteousness. Believe in it. Trust in Him. He forgave us all our sins. And if you are a Christian, I I tell you that I don't meditate on this enough. I still feel the weight of guilt far more than I ever should. Hebrews says that he can cleanse a guilty conscience. Let him do it. He forgave us all our sins. We are fully free also from the law. We're fully free. Look what it says. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, we'll discuss the Jewish legalism next week. But they're trying to slip a yoke of slavery on the necks of these Colossian Christians. It's a kind of bondage. Do this and you will live. Do it perfectly and you will live eternally. It's it's a yoke of bondage and no one can do it except one person has. One person did it. Jesus did it. And he did it on our behalf. And in so doing, he freed me from needing to do it. He has freed me from the yoke and the burden of the law. It says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. Romans 7.6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the old, sorry, serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So there's two different ways to live. You can live under grace or you can live under the law. You can live by the power of the Spirit or by the power of the flesh. Those are your two options. And this way leads to death because you cannot perfectly obey the commands of God. Now, I've thought a lot about this. You know, what does it mean? Does that mean I I don't have to follow any laws? I can do whatever I want? The law doesn't matter to me anymore? Of course not. That's not what it's saying. Do I still need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I still need to love my neighbor as myself? Of course I do. I'm just at a higher level now. I don't need to be commanded to do that. At least ultimately in the end, I will not. There will be no laws in heaven. There's no need. Let me ask you a question. You're Christian, spirit-filled, man or woman, walking with the Lord all these many years. Okay? You want to fly? You go to the airport and they make you take your shoes off. Why? Why are they going through your luggage? Why are they confiscating your three ounces of shampoo because you didn't have it down to two ounces? Why do they take my daughter's knitting needles in Paris? I'm trying to picture Jenny hijacking a plane with knitting needles. It's quite a picture, isn't it? If she can do that, I've said before, she doesn't need the knitting needle. She can just do it. These hands are, you know, just the the whole personality to be able to do it. You don't need the knitting needle. Okay, but they're gone. And they were plastic too, I think. I don't know, maybe metal, I don't know. I'm just thinking, you know why? First John says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. They don't know who we are. I am no threat, zero threat to the airplane in terms of hijacking. There is no chance I will hijack that plane that day. Zero. But I know that they can't tell the difference between me and somebody who would. And so I, I take off my shoes, I understand what's going on, etc. But there'll come a day, we don't need that. And I don't need to be told in heaven to love God with all my heart. I will love Him with all my heart. 
because I'll have a new heart. And I won't need to be commanded to love my neighbor as myself because I just will. And so will you. So we're not under the law. But yet we read the law to find out what kind of life God requires because our head is clearing little by little of sin and we need to find out how to live in this world. And so we read the law to find out what a righteous life looks like. But someday we'll be free from even that. We will all be taught by God and we'll be free from it forever. We're not under the law. And we are fully triumphant over Satan. Satan is a loser. He is. He's a loser. He is filled with rage because he knows his time is short. You should be filled with joy because you know your time is eternal. He's the loser. We're not going to get thrown in the lake of fire. He is. And so verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The image is of a Roman general who wins a battle and then takes his captives and walks down the center of of Rome, parading those captives, perhaps some uh, Germanic tribal chieftains whose warlike prowess has been harassing the borders of the empire. And finally, these men have been captured and put in chains. And they're being just paraded down to, to display their, their powerlessness before Rome. Jesus did that to the powers and the authorities. He disarmed them and made a public spectacle of them. How did he do it? By dying of all things. It was by his death he disarmed them. It says in Hebrews, since the children, that's you and I, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in bondage by their fear of death. Jesus destroyed Satan by dying. He disarmed Satan, took the weapons out of his hand and made him powerless. Powerless to do what? Well, a lot of things, but powerless to bring you with him to hell. Can't do that. He cannot accuse you on judgment day and have it make a single bit of difference to the judge. He disarmed him by dying on the cross. So there is our fullness. And by the way, think much on this promise. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Oh, I long for that day. We are full and complete friends in Christ. Fully circumcised spiritually. We are fully alive We are fully forgiven. We are fully free from the law and fully triumphant over Satan. Okay, now we've stared at the the good doctrine. We've looked at the good dollar bill. We we know what it is. Now, what about the falsehood? Well, four of them are going to come to our attention. One this week and three next week. The first one is human philosophy. Human philosophy. Look what he says. Let's go back to verse 8. By the way, this is what Satan does. Satan comes along and he hears all this doctrine, you know what I mean? And I've said all these true things and you have every right right now with me in Christ to be very happy. But Satan, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. What's he going to do? He's going to start telling you things. Yeah, but if only the pastor knew this about me. Or if only that or only the other. He starts to intimidate like a bully. He starts to tell you you're not full, you're not complete. You need to add some things, some other things. He was saying that to the Colossian Christians. You need to add human philosophy. You need to add the Jewish rituals, all that Jewish religion. You need to add asceticism, a harsh treatment of the body. And you need to add the mysticism, the worship of angels, and all the special stuff that we can do. You add these things, then you'll be full and complete in Christ. Well, that's what he's doing. He's telling us we're incomplete. I tell you that we are complete. And we're going to face these bullies. Look at philosophy first. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now, what is philosophy? Well, it's literally a love of wisdom. 
Generally speaking, what I mean by philosophy, what this text means, is the human effort to craft meaning from the universe. Ultimate questions of being. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What happens when you die? What is right and wrong, and why should I do the right and not the wrong? These are the questions that philosophy seeks to answer. Generally, philosophy is organized in three main headings. What is ultimate reality? That's called metaphysics. How can I know anything? That's called epistemology. Why does it matter? How should I act? That's ethics. These are the three main branches of philosophy. Now, let me tell you something. Obviously, you know from the Bible there's nothing wrong with loving wisdom. The real issue here is where do you get it from? <laughs> what is your source of wisdom? That's the issue. Paul does not refute all philosophy. He refutes a kind of philosophy. Look again at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. So this would be Christless philosophy. A philosophy that's not Christ-centered, word-centered, that is what he's talking about here. I think some Christians are called upon to be Christian philosophers and to do battle on that front on behalf of the church and to do good work. C.S. Lewis once said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than bad philosophy needs to be countered. So we need good philosophers to fight the bad philosophers. So that's fine. But philosophy has a long and sordid history of attacking the body of Christ. And it's gotten worse as time has gone on. It's gotten worse. In Romans chapter 1 it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, etc. So philosophy has gotten darker and darker as time has gone on. Some of it's downright depressing. David Hume, 17th century British philosopher, said this about his own philosophical system. I am at first frightened and then confounded with that forlorn solitude, loneliness, in which I am placed in my philosophy. Well, give it up then. <laughs> if it's depressing, then give it up. If it's making you downright depressed and forlorn and suicidal, then give it up. But there's David Hume. I'm frightened by it and it makes me lonely. Or René Descartes, who's not even sure whether he exists until he comes up with, I think, therefore I am. Oh, at last I know whether I exist. I'm thinking, so I must exist. This man has issues. <laughs> the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche posited a German superman from which the Nazis got their model. Doesn't need God, doesn't need anything. Totally independent. He was the first to proclaim that God is dead. But he couldn't live out his empty philosophy. He spent the last 11 years of his life insane and then committed suicide. 20th century French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was an atheist. He hated humanity. One of his characters in his play called Nausea, his play called Nausea, why would you go to see it? Why would you want to read it? But this is what he said. One of his characters said, hell is other people. Hell is other people. How can you live like that? 
Isn't that going to affect the way you look at other people? Certainly it is. Well, this is what Sartre said. He said, we were a heap of existences, uncomfortable, embarrassed at ourselves. We hadn't the slightest reason to be there, none of us. Each one confused, vaguely alarmed, felt superfluous in relation to the others. And I myself, I too was superfluous. I dreamed vaguely of killing myself to wipe out at least one of these superfluous existences. But even my death would have been superfluous. Now that's a depressed individual. A dark philosophy. Why would we drink at these fountains? So Paul warns, he says, see to it. He's using strong language. See to it. Be diligent. Be vigilant. Get the watchmen up on the walls to watch out for this stuff. Because it's so invasive. It starts to creep in and affect the way you think. You need vigilance. And, and that no one takes you captive. That's wartime language. Like we are booty. We're being dragged off like slaves to be in their village and cut their wood and carry their water for them. We're going to live on the philosopher's plantation and suffer there. Why would we want to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy? Clearly, Paul sees this as a great danger. But many philosophers have affected the church badly. Plato taught the church that the body is evil. And some believed him, like here. Aristotle laid out a foundation for transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholics bought into, teaching that the bread and the juice literally become the body and the blood of Jesus, and that by that, by eating that, you are saved. It's false doctrine. But it comes from Aristotle. Immanuel Kant said, basically, you can't know anything. Really, you're not really sure about anything. And therefore, he's questioning revelation. He's questioning the word of God. He's basically doing the serpent's role, saying, did God really say? He destroyed most of the philosophical basis for the proof of the existence of God. Evolution, you know, Darwinism has crept in. Existentialism, psychology, inclusivism, postmodernism, it's just there. It's just like a seeping fog wanting to creep in and pollute the pure mind of the people of God. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul warns about this also in 1 Corinthians. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God is so wise here. He said, you'll not think your way to, to me. You'll not think your way to salvation. You'll not think your way by studying the world and coming up with an organized system. You must passively receive truth and believe it. And then I will save you. Christ will be for you wisdom from God and righteousness from God. He will give it to you as a gift if you just be a humble beggar and ask Him for it. And so he says again in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews demand a miraculous sign and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let Christ be your philosophy. You don't need these empty human philosophies. What application can we take from this? Well, first of all, just praise God for your fullness in Christ. We're about to go to the Lord's Supper. As you are waiting and the elements are being passed, can you just spend some time thanking God for your fullness in Christ? And if you came here empty because you're not a Christian, perhaps at the moment when I preached the gospel to you, then you believed you're already full in Christ. 
But if you haven't yielded your life to Christ yet, don't take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for baptized believers. Don't take the Lord's Supper. But take this occasion so that next time we do the Lord's Supper, you'll be a baptized believer. <laughs> and then you can partake. But take the time to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you are a Christian, don't just give thanks for the good truths you've heard. But be on your guard against philosophy. Don't think you're immune. Take captive every thought. You may be a college student at Duke or, or at UNC or another college. Take what the professors say and say, is it true? Is it Christ-centered? Is it right? Take it back and find out if it's true. I want to close in prayer and then we'll go to our time of celebration of the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.